0: This morning we continue the series that we started last week looking at the call of God and particularly looking at it as uh, the call that we have where we are right now. We can often think of God's call as something mysterious and something that you have to, you know, search for the signs and the details and try to figure out you know, yourself over a long period of time. But there's also instances where the call could be just to be faithful to God exactly where you are right now. Or the call might be something like you're sitting in an auditorium and an elder is standing before you and tells you that we're looking for more people to lead in services and to lead prayers and things like that. That might be a very specific way that you're hearing a call, as we heard just, uh, just not very long ago. Um, the call may be something like we need more Bible class teachers. The call may be something that falls right into your lap and when you hear those things, you're receiving your call right then and there. Uh, That is your call to start something new and to try something um, in service to God, perhaps that you've not done before. So as we go through this, think very specifically about ways that you could be called in faithfulness and in service and in ministry to God. It happens all the time. It's happened today, and it'll probably happen again. And God's calling isn't some distant, difficult-to-discern mystery, Sometimes his calling is very obvious, and sometimes his calling is right now. We're going to be looking at examples of people in the Bible who had callings that were thrust upon them, even callings necessarily uh, that they didn't want. Uh, Sometimes those callings weren't things that they had prepared for. They weren't things that they thought they were qualified to do. But a need fell before them, and God chose them and used them to fill it. Today we're going to move a little bit further. Last week we talked about Adam and Eve. Now we're going to move on to a a man named Noah. And we're going to look at his calling. And one of the things that's interesting about Noah's calling is how often the rest of the biblical writers, when they look back to Noah, one of the things that stands out about him is that he had a very lonely calling. And what I mean by that is it's often the fact that Noah was alone in what he did or virtually alone in what he did that makes him stand apart. And sometimes our calling can be something that nobody else in our circle is doing. Sometimes even just the call of the gospel and the call of being a Christian is something that your family has not done, or your coworkers have not done, or your group of friends, or your your social uh, peers have not done, and all of a sudden you have to start making different kinds of decisions than them, and it can become a very, very lonely calling. I think one of the reasons that uh, Noah is remembered for this is because it's difficult, like being lonely in what you're doing, especially when you're the only one at your school, or you're the only one at your workplace who's trying to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. It is so much harder without a community. Uh, that's one of the reasons, by the way, that we're not called as Christians to do Christianity alone. We are called to be part of a community. Uh, they, I, it's it's a very misguided notion that a lot of people I think have that. This whole Christianity thing is between me and Jesus. Not quite. Jesus doesn't want it just to be between you and him. He wants it to be between you and your community of faith and him. Uh, It's not just a personal commitment to Jesus. It's also a communal commitment to Jesus. It is part of, of a community, of a family. And Jesus wants us to honor that family. He wants us to be part of that family. In short, the church matters, and it's one of the best helps you could have in life for your calling not to be such a lonely calling. But even if you have the greatest church family in the world, and you are connected, and you're, you're a part of it, and you're involved, and you're serving, and you have friends there, there are going to be times when you are, say, with your, at your workplace, or at your school, or among a non-Christian uh, family gathering, or wherever you may be, where doing the right thing for Christ is a lonely calling. It's something that you're on your own doing, and you have to stand up, and I think Noah becomes a pretty interesting example of what that looks like. Noah's call came at one of the wildest times in all of human history. When you think about what he endured, and what he went through, and what he was told was going to happen, in essence, God was going to change everything. God was going to change everything by, on, in one respect, bringing punishment to the earth. There's a lot of different lenses through which you can look at the flood, and we're going to look at a couple of them, but one of them I think very definitely is punishment. God looked at the world and the world had a calling that it had rejected from the days of Cain, uh, you know, you, or Adam and Eve even. Adam and Eve in the garden, they had this calling last week we talked about that they chose, rather than to heed God's wisdom, to try to steal wisdom for themselves, to be their own gods and their own eyes and to be their own source of authority, and that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented, and they chose that, and there were dire consequences to that. They were exiled from the garden, but it doesn't end there. They then begin raising children, and one of their sons rises up and kills their other son. And all of a sudden, not just sin, but violence and murder and death enter into God's world. And it doesn't stop there. You keep reading and you are introduced to Lamech, who talks about avenging and killing people who have insulted him or who have wounded him. And that violence breeds more violence, and hatred breeds more hatred, and wickedness breeds more wickedness, until you get to Genesis 6, where you hear, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice how many words there are in that verse that uh, amplify how bad things were. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's like everything you do is always evil forever and it's only evil and it's just like that's what god is starting to see when he looks at the world the hatred of cain and and the violence and the sin has spread to such an extent that that's just the whole world is covered in this pollution and you look a little bit further down in verse 11 of chapter 6 it says the earth was corrupt in the sight of god and the earth was filled with violence Uh, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. It's like he looks and all flesh has become corrupted. There's violence and there's death and there's murder and there's hatred and all of that stuff are filling the world. And so you know what God's going to do? He's going to punish that. God does punish. Um, We we know that God is, is merciful and kind and loving and forgiving and wonderful and graceful, but we also know that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God does punish sin, and that's something that we have to deal with. And it's not something that we always love to talk about, but it's a very real part of scripture that sin is an affront to the very character and holiness and righteousness of God, and God responds to that with wrath. And God responds to that with anger, and God responds to that with punishment. But God also doesn't lose sight of truth in his goodness and his character when he's angry. You know, what what sometimes happens with, with humans is anger is an avenue through which we lose control of ourselves. God's anger does not cause him to lose control. As a matter of fact, God's anger, I think, is always very controlled. God's anger is a part of his justice, because when he sees people being oppressed, and when he sees murder, and when he sees violence and wickedness, God is just and wants to put an end to that oppression. He wants to set the f- slaves free. He wants to stand up for widows and orphans. He wants to defend those who are being oppressed. He wants to put an end to that righteous, uh, unrighteousness and violence. And so what God ultimately ends up doing is another lens through which you can look at the flood story. It's, it's an act of punishment But it's also an act of uncreation and then recreation. And what I mean by that is if you were to hit the rewind button in the book of Genesis and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What do you learn about the world before God ever said, Let there be light? It's dark with waters everywhere. And then during the days of creation, we talked about it last week, God turns on the lights and then he moves some water up and then he moves some water over so that dry land appears. But prior to that, you just had this world covered with waters. And you know what God's going to do in Genesis 6? He's going to hit the rewind button and go back to that state and then start things over again. He's going to cover the world with the water. He's going to go back to the uncreated world. uh, And then he's going to recreate it in a new way with a new Adam. And that's actually, we'll get to that in a minute. But that's going to be Noah's calling is to be a new Adam in a new world. The thing has started over. So, So when we talk about Noah's lonely calling, you know, Noah, one of the ways that later biblical writers talk about him You can read, like, uh, Ezekiel chapter 14. When they talk about Noah, they talk about the fact that they actually link him with Daniel and Job as people who, even though they were righteous— they were only able, in essence, to save themselves and the whole rest of the world. Uh, they weren't saved just because of the righteousness of, of one or two. So it's, it's a message in Ezekiel saying, don't think that just because you have a righteous man there that, that Jerusalem will be spared. OK, God has saved the righteous and punished everyone else before. Uh, and he uses Noah as an example of that. In, uh, in the book of Hebrews, Noah is mentioned as an example of someone who faith was unique and stood out in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Noah is mentioned as an example of one who God spared—he was a preacher of righteousness, and God spared him along with seven others, even though the whole rest of the world was ungodly. Like, Noah is constantly remembered for being, in essence, alone. And when we talk about the loneliness of Noah, even his family, you know, they're never actually called righteous. Maybe they were good, but the only one who we know was actually righteous was, was Noah. And it may have just been an act of grace to save his family and to, to help as they, they repopulated the world. But the idea is God's reducing the world back to this one family to start this whole creation process over again. Because the creation that he had made, the good world that he looked at and said is very good, had become only evil continually. And it was filled with violence and corruption. And so there's an uncreation process. But part of that is also you can look at the, the flood as an act of grace and an act of baptism. And as a matter of fact, uh, that's, that's the way that the book of First Peter goes back and describes the flood. In First Peter chapter three and verse 20 and 21, he likens it to Christian baptism. What happens in baptism? Well, the corruption is washed away and you are saved to become something new you're saved in in a new and holy way and this is a way in which god saved his world if he let the world continue on the way that it was it was getting darker and worse and more violent and people were killing each other the world was destroying itself much like we are without christ but what he did was he saw that and he acted in grace not to give up on his world not to destroy his world and, and turn his back on it but rather to redeem his world through a cleansing and through a washing. So in grace, God cleansed the world, recreated the world, started the world afresh and anew. And later Christian writers looked at that and they clearly saw symbolism in what we do when we become Christians. Our lives are often lives of corruption and sin that God gives us the opportunity through his grace to be cleansed of and to to be purified of and to start anew. And so you can look at the flood in a lot of ways, and Noah's calling is found in each of them. Uh, Whether it's it's the the calling of living in a world and standing out while everyone else is getting punished, you are the one who's being saved. That in and of itself is a difficult thing to deal with. But then he has the calling of being a new Adam and and of repopulating the world and of being that family that the rest of the world comes from. And then he has that calling of of living through God's grace in this baptismal process where he he should live as a new man on the other side of it to make the world a better place. When we look at his call of being a new Adam, we see that that comes with a number of responsibilities. or or at least connections back to Adam, where we can see it even more clearly. But one is that there is only one family again. Uh, You have Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives. And through this family, the rest of the world is to be uh, repopulated. When you look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 19, or I guess you can look at verse 18, but it says, The sons of Noah who came on the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth and Ham was the father of Canaan. That'll become important for later on. That's actually an enemy of Israel. Um, And these uh, three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, uh, from these, the whole earth was populated. So the idea of him being this new Adam is he's going to have children, and through his children they'll have children, and they'll have children, and it's the same call that, that Adam had. The ark in this, in this idea becomes this, this floating Eden type place where he is saved from the rest of the world in this idyllic condition where you even have animals in there, but they're not fighting and killing and destroying each other. Uh, you have this, uh, this, uh, salvation that's The only like the only thing that separates Genesis 6, 7, 8 from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where the earth is covered in darkness, is uh, you have this boat that's on the water in the later stories. And in that boat is life, and in that boat is a future, and in that boat is the very grace and salvation that God is providing, and in that boat is a family, and in that boat are all the animals. I mean, that's, that's in essence a lot like what Eden was. And you see that. You see uh, all of the animals again. One of the things that's interesting is when the animals are getting on the boat, and then also when they're getting off the boat, they're described in the same language that's used in Genesis 1 when they are created originally. So like when God creates the animals, he doesn't just say, and God created the animals, but he talks about the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every creeping thing that creeps upon the face of the earth. Like those aren't normal words to use to talk about animals. Uh, You know, every creeping thing that creeps upon the face of the earth or something like that. But notice in Genesis chapter 8, in verse 17, it says, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they all may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So that uh, initiative that was given to man there in creation about being fruitful and multiplying is now giving to The birds and the fish and the animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, all the stuff that God made in Genesis 1 is now alive still in Genesis 8 and is given a a commission. Noah himself in chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply uh, and and, and fill the earth. Uh, If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, it's after God made man and woman in his image. It said uh, that he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Um, it. So all of these connections you can find, even the idea of God making man in his image in Genesis chapter 1, when you get to uh, Genesis chapter 9, after, uh, after the, uh, the flood, it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. He's going to go back to talking about the value and the importance of the image of God. What happened prior to the flood? People were killing each other, in violence and violence, and whoever had the most power was right, and it was like corruption was taking over. And here, right after the flood, God reminds them, you were created in my image. Man shall not shed man's blood. There's dire consequences of that. And, um, and so... Part of this commission is God blessed them. He told them to multiply. He told them to fill the earth, not to act in violence. He reminded them of the image of God. But then, in his quest to be the new Adam, Noah was a little bit too much like Adam Um, It wasn't just that there was one family and that he was saved in this Eden-type boat and that uh, he was caring for all of the animals and that God blessed him and that God told him to multiply and to, to fill the earth. And it wasn't just that he had the image of God and it wasn't just all the good stuff. Just like Adam was in a garden and then sinned with the fruit that was being produced, one of the very next things you see Noah do after getting out of the ark, after God shows him the rainbow and makes this covenant with him, Genesis chapter 9 in verse 20. This is Noah's like his first actions getting back to life in the new world that God made. Then Noah began farming. Okay, that's good. You know, that was that's kind of what Adam was supposed to do, right? Adam was supposed to care for the garden, tend it, keep it. He was supposed to subdue the rest of the earth and all that. Well, Noah's going to start doing that and he planted a vineyard. Okay, that's great. Grapes are a good sign of God's loving kindness, and, and God's blessings for humanity. It's all good stuff. And then verse 21, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in the tent. And all of a sudden, what he starts doing is misusing the creation that he was supposed to be tending, and this is the first example you see of excessive drunkenness, and it leads to some problems. He has a son that goes in there, and we're told sees his father's nakedness. Um, You don't get the impression that he walked in and said, oh, and turned around and walked away. Uh, Something happened there that we're not, there's no details given about it, but uh, Something bad was done to Noah in that. And the other brothers, however, came in, and they carefully covered their father up and cared for him. And all of a sudden, you see sin from the father, sin of his sons. And then do you remember what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? Remember God had blessed them, but then after the sin, you have the serpent being cursed, and then the, uh, Eve's pain in childbirth birth is increased, and then cursed is the ground because of you. You have these blessings, and you have these curses. Well, the same thing is going to follow after sin enters into the new world. Uh, In Genesis chapter 9, Noah says, because of what uh, his youngest son had done to him, uh, verse 24 says, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a family of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the God, the the Lord, the God of Shem, Um, you see blessing and curse introduced into the new world. And by the way, the story's not going to stop here. Just like it spread from Adam and Eve to Cain, and it turned the whole world into what, wickedness, you'll see that this new world God made, this type of sin is going to continue until you get to the Tower of Babel, where the world is full of wickedness again. And then, and then the, the Tower of Babel people are spread out, and you see they take their sin with them, and the world becomes contaminated and polluted again, until there's another one who's called, who we'll talk about next week, and his name is Abram, and he's supposed to bring blessing back into the world again. Rather than God destroying the whole world and starting over, he's going to work through the sinfulness of man with a particular family to bring about uh, his redemption again. But as we go through this, we see that Noah was a very lonely follower. Um, Noah didn't have a lot of friends to help him in the construction of the ark. He didn't have a lot of friends who were standing there and supporting him. and they, He couldn't go and get uh, uh, the encouragement of a community of faithful followers of God to help stay faithful in a world of darkness. He was in a world full of sin, and it wasn't very long until that sin was even in his own family and was destroying things as well. You know, I wonder, I, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but... Um, Noah, one of the first things he does afterwards is plant a vineyard and to get drunk, and um, he's been through a lot. You know, there, there are times when you've been through something really, really traumatic and difficult that the bottle is one of the first things you want to turn to, and I don't know if he fully even understood what vineyard, I don't know what he knew at that point, and if that's some of the reason for it, but I don't know that there are many people who have gone through what Noah had gone through, I don't know if there's many people who had seen everyone that they've ever known wiped out and killed before. Uh, And now you're in this new world, and you're alone, and you don't know what to do. And you start to plant a vineyard, and then all of a sudden one thing leads to another, and you are abusing that which uh, God intended to be good. I don't know, but I know that loneliness can be one of the most difficult things in the world to deal with, especially as a follower which is why, be a part of a community, be a part of the church, be a a follower who has other followers with you, and when you find yourself alone, here's the challenge, and I wish I had worded it differently, um, because it doesn't make a lot of sense as it's worded, but uh, don't reject God's calling in order to, I'm going to add that phrase, stand amidst the crowd. God's calling isn't to stand amidst the crowd, but basically what I'm saying is don't ignore what God has said so that you can stand with a bunch of people stand with a crowd, fit in with everyone else, and uh, if you do so, then the whole, if Noah had done so, that story is going to be quite different, right? Uh, If there was no one who was standing out. God saved the world through the one who stood out. Uh, Be willing to do the same, because you don't know what God can do with you in those situations. So when you are alone, continue to fight the fight Continue to remain faithful to God and make sure that, you gain, that you're able to regain some encouragement by gathering together again, by being part of a community, by being involved, by answering calls within this community to be, get more involved, to be more service-oriented, to build better relationships, to have a, a stronger commitment to one another. If there's anyone here who maybe it's the pressures of this world, uh, in your, the, the circles in which you find yourself, you've noticed that they are pulling you away from God's calling, that you're acting more and more and more like the world, and you're acting less and less and less like Christ. Uh, Now is a wonderful opportunity to ask for the prayers of a community who loves you and who cares for you to try to overcome some of those things. If anyone wants to become a Christian here this morning or would like the prayers of the church in overcoming sin, please let that be known. You can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.